Good evening. Thought I'd give you a partial break in the sermons linked to Romans 12 this evening. And uh, because Rob was teaching on Wednesday evenings Bible class with a picture of some of the judges in the Old Testament, I thought we'd take a look there. And I'd like to get a, a high-level view of the book of Judges. I'm pretty certain those of you that are familiar with Judges may not be too excited about this because it is a dark, dismal, and depressing book. But I'll try to bring out something more about it as we go along. Not going to look at it verse by verse. If we were to look at Judges verse by verse, we'd probably be here for the next 20 years or so at least. But what I want to do is look at a little bit at Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2 tonight and the overall pattern. Take a look at a theme of what has happened in the book. The book of Judges is made up of poetry and riddles, but mainly it's a narrative story. Its author is anonymous, but it's usually assumed that Samuel the prophet wrote it around 1086 to uh, 1004 B.C. The book's purposes are to teach that God is faithful, that he will bless his people, but if his people turn their backs on him, they're going to be punished for their sin of not remaining loyal and faithful. So let's take a quick look, Judges chapter 1, verse 1, through Judges chapter 3, verse 6. You'll find that Israel has failed to keep their part of the covenant. They did not entirely conquer and take control of all the land that was promised them. They were warned what would happen in Numbers chapter 33, verses 55 through 56, where it says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And this problem, unfortunately, grows way out of control at times. And then in Judges chapter 3, verse 7, through Judges chapter 16, you see that God raised up judges to rescue Israel several times. And it's a vicious cycle. The Israelites sin, God rescues them through the use of judges. They worship God for a while, the judge dies, sin starts all over again, and so on. You will see that the rescues are temporary because the nation's obedience only lasts as long as the life of that particular judge. And then in Judges chapter 17 through 21, you see Israel sinking into a horrid state of moral demise and ruin. It's mainly in the tribes of Dan and Benjamin that we see how far man has really turned away from the God of Abraham. The tribe of Dan is almost completely given into the worship of idols, even to the point where they practically defend it. You will see later that the entire tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out, down to 600 men, in a violent and vicious civil war. It's during this time we find the sad words of Judges 21, Verse 25, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Sad picture. How many politicians does it take to change a light bulb? Two. One to change it, another to change it back again. 
Now, it's getting more difficult to find a joke that will not offend somebody or some group. As far as I know, politicians are not yet a protected class. Humor is one place where we see concern about political correctness, but it's also a concern in normal speech where we might be trying to teach. We live in times where political correctness keeps people from saying things that they might want to against anyone or against what that person is doing because they might be sued. They're afraid that someone will think they're being judgmental. And while there is good that comes from telling people not to use hurtful speech, unfortunately political correctness can be used to hide or suppress the truth because people do not like to be told that what they're doing is wrong. I can think of no better way to hide evil than to tuck it in with something that can be seen as good. Yet God has spoken. His rules are clear. He did not give Israel ten alternatives. He gave them ten commandments. It is important for us today that we know both the blessings of being obedient and the consequences of disobedience in this life. And as we look at this sad book of Judges, we're going to see the consequences of a people who refuse to be obedient to God. This really, truly, is the most evil and darkest time in the history of Israel as a nation. Moses died, God appointed Joshua to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Although Joshua succeeded in entering the land, he failed to bring them rest. As you will see later on, when Joshua dies, everything quickly goes downhill. The judges of the Old Testament arose during a period of internal anarchy and external conflict, covering the time between the death of Joshua and the anointing of King Saul. Looking at Judges chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it tells us, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked. In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. Sad verse, isn't it? This was a time of of disaster on a colossal scale for Israel. We all know that God's people were led to Canaan and told to conquer the land, but instead they became infected with the idolatry of the Canaanites. They were to make no treaties with the inhabitants. They were not to marry any foreigners, but it got to the point where you did not know who was an Israelite or who was a Canaanite. They were so much mixed together, you could not tell the difference between the two. And they were happy to settle down among the Canaanites, to the point where you did not know who the Israelites were. Instead of them driving out the Canaanites, they became like them, and they practiced what they practiced. Right from the very first few verses of the book of Judges, we can see Israel departing from God and totally taking on the practices of the Canaanites. Judges chapter 1, verse 6. Then Adani Bezek, and Adani Bezek is simply the name of the king, or the name for the king of this area, Bezek. Then Adani Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
Adani Bezik was one of the kings of the area. They chased him and caught him. And what did they do? They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. It's graphic. Kind of graphic, isn't it? But when you read Judges, you're going to find a lot of graphic. What was Israel supposed to do? They were supposed to kill the Canaanites and get rid of them all. But what did they do? They captured and mutilated the king, which was the very practice of the Canaanites. Right away, we see they have taken on practicing what the Canaanites are doing. And then in verse 28 of chapter 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to drive out all of the Canaanites from the land of Canaan. That's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. But what did they do? The Israelites kept them and forced the Canaanites to work for them. It's easy to allow the world around us to influence us. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world is trying to conform us to its standards. The world tries to conform us to its ways. Paul says we need to guard against that. God does not want us to think like the world thinks. He does not want us to compromise with the world and go along with the world's ways. We sing the hymn, This World is Not My Home. But there are times when we actually get far too comfortable in the world we live in, and we make it our home. God has a higher calling for us, and we will have to answer to a higher authority. Israel was happy to compromise with the world that was around them at the time. That compromise with the Canaanites led them to idolatry, intermarriage, and eventually to having no rules. I think there's an advertisement on television recently about that. Looking at Judges 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Anarchy. It's a sad picture for God's chosen people. Of course we think, well, we do not fall down and worship idols today. But think about that carefully, because the old gods are still with us today. They've simply updated their appearance. They've accommodated themselves to modern times. They still claim to provide meaning of life. They still promise to provide for our personal desires. They still demand wholehearted commitment from their worshipers. Well, if that's true, who are these idols? What are they called? They're called materialism, comfort, power, immorality. The outcome of Israel's compromise was the shocking reality that their real enemy became God. He ensured that when they went out to battle, the outcome would be defeat. But God, who is rich in mercy, in his grace, raised up leaders to bring Israel back in line. The judges were deliverers, and they were charged in restoring the peace. They were given as 
spiritual leaders and political leaders. And there were 12 judges that are listed in the book. We're given a lot of information about some, and other judges are simply mentioned. As you read through this sad, depressing book, you will see that everything rises and falls on leadership. You'll also see that God uses weak, imperfect people to accomplish his work, and he uses the most unlikely of leaders to demonstrate his grace and power. For Israel during this period, the judges came at a time of war. As we mentioned earlier, the Jewish nation was charged with driving out the Canaanites. And I wondered, why would God send them into a land that was already occupied? Why didn't he send them to a place where no one lived, so they could settle there and not have any influence around them? After all, they spent 40 years of hardship in the wilderness, and now they're going to have to deal with all of this external and internal conflict. In answer to my wondering, I find in Judges chapter 3, the first four verses, this message. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon to the entrance of Harmoth, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. God led them to Canaan to test them, He wanted to see if they would be obedient to him. His people are to trust him, to trust his mighty power, to trust that he would help them to hold on to the promised land. They needed to remember that they were holy. They were a chosen and treasured possession. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. He wanted them to remember who they were as a people. They needed to know just how holy they were to be. Remember now we're dealing with a new generation of Israelites from those who wandered in the wilderness. Judges 2 and 10 says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. There are times when we might talk to our children or grandchildren about music and we might mention groups to them like the Rolling Stones or the Beach Boys or the Eagles. Chances are you might get blank expressions. If you were to talk to them about Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln, they again might look at you as if to say, who are they? And that's because they're a different generation, and they haven't listened to any of what they now call old music, and they know little about Churchill or Lincoln because they haven't been taught much about them. If we do not talk to our children and our grandchildren about the past, then they cannot learn anything from it. 
we don't talk to our kids about the Bible, they won't learn anything about God. We know that parents are to bring up their children properly, and children are expected to respond wisely to parental training. This next generation of Israelites was held responsible for their own spiritual failings. The text says they did not know God, and that does not mean that they were not aware of God. It means they did not regard or acknowledge God as their Lord. Things haven't changed much today, have they? Most people in the world are aware of the God of the Bible, but they refuse to have any regard for him or acknowledge him as their God. An atheist said, as we heard a few weeks ago, if there is a God, may he prove himself by striking me dead right now, and of course nothing happened. You see, there is no God, he said. A Christian replied and said, you've only proved that he is a gracious God. As you go through this book, you will see that Israel is almost acting like children in a classroom. You know, when the teacher leaves the room for a while, I can remember when I was in school and the teacher had to go to the office for some reason or other, a sick child perhaps, and you can almost guarantee that the kids will get into all sorts of mischief. When the cat's away, the mice will play, as the saying goes. In effect, the Israelites were still immature in their thinking of God. Their view was incomplete about the power of God and all that had been and would be done for them. That's what it was like in the time of the judges. When the judges appeared, everyone went back to their best behavior. But as soon as the judge dies, the children of Israel got involved with all kinds of mischief sinful practices. Any whim that struck their fancy drew them away. In Judges chapter 1, the first two verses, it begins by telling us, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And then in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it goes on and tells us, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so it was, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Next, in Judges 2 and 16, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. It seems that whenever we are left to ourselves, you can almost guarantee that it won't be long before we'll find a way to get ourselves in deep trouble. God had delivered them from their terrible slavery in Egypt. He had led them through the wilderness, given them blessing after blessing. They were his favorite people. They were his chosen ones. He led them. He fed them. He protected them. 
and eventually he led them into the land of Canaan, which was their promised land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and it was given to them not because they were great, but because God promised this land to their ancestors. Just before Moses dies, God said to him in Deuteronomy 34 and 4, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. All they had to do was enter the land, destroy the people, drive them out who were living there, and take up residence. He was their God, their Redeemer. He gave them law, but Israel failed to stay faithful to God and failed to stay faithful to his laws. He got to the point where God had to judge the very people that he loved so much. And make no mistake about it, God will judge. Think about it. When Israel entered Canaan, the sky was the limit. God had promised them land. All they had to do was claim it by faith. But notice how they started. They were blessed with God's foresight. In verse 2, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And this is said in the future tense. God says he has already given them the land, even though the Israelites haven't done anything yet. In other words, God was going before them, preparing the way for certain victory. There was no way they could lose as long as God was behind them, in front of them, above them, all around them. As Christians today, we have the same promise. And that's why Apostle Paul can say confidently in Romans 8 and 31, if God is for us, who can be against it? Against us. They were blessed with God's protection. In chapter 1, verse 19, it tells us, So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains. I'll stop there. This shows that God was actively involved in helping Israel conquer the land of Canaan. He not only prepared the way, he also protected them along the way. They also had the blessing of God's power. In Judges 1 and 4, it says, And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men in Bezek. This tells us who the real power on the battlefield was. It was God. He has all the power. Again, we too as Christians have the same power available today and at work within us. Ephesians 3 and 20. Now to him who is able to exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. What other blessings did they have? They had the blessing of God's promises, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 1. God had been promising to give the nation of Israel a homeland. You might say they were blessed beyond their wildest dreams. As we've already seen, those blessings quickly are going to be removed by God himself. This new generation of Israelites forgot their heritage, denied the very God who made them and what they were. And slowly but surely, they went down the compromising route. They conformed. God warned them about that before they entered the land, back in Numbers 33, verses 51 through 54. He said they must destroy the people of Canaan. 
they also had another warning, starting at verse 55. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, shall it be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And sadly, as you read the book of Judges, you find out that this was to become the harsh reality for Israel. Now look at the second half of verse 19 in chapter 1. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. So after some success, Judah ended up facing Canaanites, which they feared because of the Canaanites' power. And because of that fear, they did not drive them out of the land. Verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheen and its villages, or Tachik and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Elbeam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwell in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them, and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acho, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or inhabitants of Aleb, or Ashib, or Helba, or Ahank, or Rohob. Here the text tells us that some of the Canaanites they didn't fear, and Israel forced them to work for them, but again they did not drive them from the land. And in Judges chapter 1 verse 32 it says, So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. Now, these verses tell us that they didn't fear these people, but they were quite happy to live alongside them. And again, they did not drive them out of the land. Isn't there a danger of history repeating itself with God's children today? There are some people in this world that we fear and we don't want to be around. There are other people we do not mind being around, and yet there are others we actually like spending time among. We spend so much time surrounded by sin that we sometimes become desensitized to it. I enjoy watching action-adventure films and sci-fi films and I did not realize just how desensitized I had become to some of the content. The amount of inappropriate language and off-color situations in films is unbelievable these days. I mean, I would just sit down and watch it, but the full import of what I was seeing dawned on me very slowly. I thought I was seeing just the story, when I looked in the second viewing and the third viewing, I started to notice that other things were going on, and I was shocked. Instead of maintaining our spiritual purity as Christians, 
we begin to be desensitized. We get comfortable with, and then we adopt the ways of the world. There are times when we talk like them, we walk like them, we do what they do, we go where they go, we watch what they watch, like what they like, drink what they drink. And if we're not careful, we'll become just like Israel during the time of the judges. We can very easily adopt the attitude that this sin or that sin isn't all that bad anymore. We can fail to see it because we become desensitized to it. We can very easily allow the walls of separation that exist between the church and the world erode to the point where it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Reminded of Proverbs 6 and 27, this is a favorite of mine. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? In other words, do we really believe we can play around with sin and not get burnt? Do we really believe that God is going to allow his people to sin without consequences? Because of their sin, Israel faced the Lord's judgment. And you will see as you read the Old Testament, they were going to endure the divine sentence of from God himself. It's a tough message to listen to, but of course it's not all doom and gloom. There's more to look at. Judges chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to read from the King James Version here. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges and delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Think about it. That's amazing, really. In spite of their failures, God still sent men to lead them and to guide them. You see, sometimes God's people, instead of listening, and sometimes they did listen. Despite all their sin and their hard-heartedness, God still loves them, and God is patient with them. He gives them every chance to set things right. It's kind of a message we need to hear today, isn't it? If we can be as loving and as patient with each other as we expect God to be with us. We say, God, I've let you and myself down so many times this week, and I'm so sorry. And God says, I know you have. Nevertheless, I still love you. We say, God, I am really struggling with sin in my life. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Help me and give me strength. God says, I know you are. Nevertheless, I am being patient with you, and when you repent, I will forgive you. Perhaps you're not a Christian this evening, and you're thinking, I've done way too many bad things in my life for God to have any interest in me. God says, I know you have. Nevertheless, I love you so much, I have sent my son to die for you anyway. You might be thinking, I believe in you, God, but I'm not certain I can handle being a Christian yet. I have too many things going on. And God says, I know you have, but I understand. Nevertheless, your time may be shorter than you think. While you tarry, I'll be patient with you. Folks, all through the book of Judges is a record of Israel's very dark history. And it can be very challenging to read and apply today the things there that we should learn. We can see there are blessings for being obedient to God, and we can see there are consequences to be paid when we are disobedient. But if you take the time to read carefully between the lines, you will see the love and grace of God like you've never seen it before because it is in stark contrast 
to what the Israelites were doing. There may be somebody here this evening who is not a member of the body of Christ. You could believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you are willing to openly confess your faith and repent of your sins. We will be glad to assist you and baptize you into the body of Christ. If you are a child of God and you've given into the pressure, as a consequence of giving you that pressure, you've gotten into sin, our God is gracious and he is merciful. He will forgive you and take the sin from you when you repent. And we will assist you. We will pray for you. We will pray with you. We will do the very best we can to encourage you. If you're subject to any of the gospel call tonight in any way, let it be made known while we stand and while we sing.